Okay. Sometimes the older songs just have a little, little different punch to it for me. So, Well, we are going to be studying Ezra and Nehemiah. little history for it is Ezra and Nehemiah were essentially one book. Uh, if you read throughout, the author for, uh, for Ezra and Nehemiah are both Ezra. It also includes Nehemiah, who was adding things in as well. But Ezra was um, a scribe. Uh, he wrote down things for a history. He also was a priest. That'll come into play basically in the, in the book with, that's bearing his name. And then Nehemiah was also one that was very heavily into that, but he was essentially an official in uh, King Cyrus's court. And that will come into play as well, but he essentially was, uh, was to be known as a governor of the area appointed by, by the king to, uh, to Israel. Back, uh, uh, as he went back and forth, he had two different terms, if you will, for, for that. What we find is Ezra and Nehemiah are the last records of uh, the, the Old Testament. Um, uh, other than Malachi, who was the, the prophet during that time as well, this, along with, with some others, is basically the last history prior to the birth of Jesus. And in this, what this is is essentially that um, the Israel, the, the uh, captives, the exiles... Uh, were being brought back into, they were essentially taken out of exile, if you will. They were still going to be under uh, control of the, uh, the Persians uh, under Cyrus, but they were being permitted to come back. And so there were, there were three different groups. Uh, two of them came. Uh, the second one was with, with Ezra, and then a third came with Nehemiah. There's a little significance here, and I wanted to, to bring out some things out of the, the Fire Bible. There were some great notes that, that highlighted out some scriptures. But essentially, I want us to, to think the theme for tonight is pray for an opportunity and plan as though it's going to happen. Repeat that with me. Pray for an opportunity and plan as though it's going to happen. Okay. That planning has all sorts of facets to it, but we're going to talk about that after a while. Uh, just over the, the sense of this is as Ezra is coming back, he has gotten uh, the edicts or the, the uh, pro- proclamation uh, from Darius, who was the, the king of, of Persia at the time. He had, he had authorized for the temple to be rebuilt because the Persians tended to be a little different than the Babylonians. The Babylonians were always, uh, always about, you know, tear things down and take people away. And now the, uh, the, the, the king, uh, uh, King Darius, uh, the, the Scripture says that the Lord turned his heart. And there's been several, several occurrences where God will use secular authorities in different ways in order to accomplish his will. One would be, of course, that when, uh, when his people are rebellious and continually disobey and do not follow his will, there are consequences and he will use people like Nebuchadnezzar to exact that. There are also times when in Scripture he says that he is going to, or in the, the prophets, he says that he is going to bring them back after a period of 70 years. If you remember last time we talked about Daniel, that 70, 70 
uh, period, 70 weeks, was going to be divided out into representing years, and this is what is coming now, is right about 70 years is when the first exiles start returning back to, to Jerusalem in order to repair the, the temple. The temple is one of those where um, someone gets a, gets a little bit into this, and, and we always have to consider that even though everything is going your way, don't ever think that someone can't throw a wrench into it or that someone won't try to throw a wrench into it. Amen? No matter how much God is for us, no matter how much we try to do this, there will always be someone else, some, some agency, some, some person, some official, some jerk that wants to be able to upend everything and make life difficult. Uh, the way this comes for Ezra is that while they are building the temple, uh, some of the, the people from Samaria, and I got a little, uh, just for a little side note, um, when you read so much of the Old Testament, especially if you just read Ezra and Nehemiah, you would get a real sense as for why when we look at the, the Gospels and, and Jesus and, and all of the disciples and everyone's interactions with the Sumerians and with the Gentiles and whatever else, you start to get an understanding that maybe somewhere in history they kind of earned a little distrust. And this tended to be one of those when basically the ones that were in Samaria, uh, who were from other lands, in other words, if you will, uh, they were the ones trying to do this. They were stirring up trouble. They were sending back uh, things to the king, telling him they're, they're trying to upend you. They're trying to challenge your authority, whatever else. None of this is true. However, it had been true in the past. During this, this period where, where, the, temple was be, where the, the building was being stopped, I want to throw in the book of Esther falls right into that place as well. And if you consider the fact that, that knowing, if anyone knows anything about Esther, Esther is brought in as such a time as this simply because if this had not occurred, none of the rest of what I'm going to lay out in our, in our history lesson here would have occurred. Because the, the end result for, uh, for uh, King uh, Ahasuerus' uh, uh, main officials was basically to wipe the entire Jewish race out. All of the people that had been in exile, that had gone back, all of the people that were still there, the entire mindset for this guy was to wipe them all out. And Esther is the reason why they were not. So always consider that just one person being just one person, right place, right time. If God puts you in it, you may think that you have the, the least possibility of exacting change, doing anything about it. But if God has appointed us to do it, Open your stinking mouth and say it, whatever he has called you to do. So, so what occurs then is after a period of about 20 years or so, um, the kingship, the, the, the monarchy, if you will, for, for Persia has changed. And Ezra decides to, to challenge this, so he starts building things. And, of course, the same people that were challenging him before now are trying to bring problems up again. So Ezra writes a letter back and basically goes through and says, according to, to Darius and according to the, the royal edicts and everything else, this was what was being, he, he gave a factual reason. This was authorized by the, by the monarchy. This was authorized within the, the history lesson, within the, the historical records. And we are operating under this, under this direct edict. And Darius follows it. 
Darius says, go ahead, and they continue on. So the, so the temple is finally built. After a period of time then, uh, we find that Nehemiah is getting reports back from those, they, they've, they've completed the, the temple, they've finished everything, everything is in good shape, they're offering sacrifices and that. And I'm going to go back to some other points here just to not gloss over this. But they, he starts getting reports back. He is essentially the cupbearer for the king. Not really a, a high official, I would guess, but I guess if, if the king likes his wine, cupbearer may be, may, may be a really good person to have next to you. And he's getting reports back. And without giving a, a visible uh, image, if you will. In other words, he wasn't moping around. He wasn't trying to look upset. He wasn't trying to, to get someone's attention. He wasn't trying to, to, to you know, harp on someone's you know, emotions or whatever. The king had been in such close proximity to him that without visibly looking at it, the king knew something was wrong with Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says, well, the city has no protection. There is no wall. The, the enemies are coming in. They are doing what they want. All these other things. And the king says, well, how much, what would it take to be able to do this? And Nehemiah had an answer. He didn't say, let me get back to you, and I'll go do some figuring. He had an answer. We would need these sorts of timbers. We would need these sorts of people. We would need to do all these, these other things along the lines. He had an answer. And uh, one other part that I, I forget the, the part to it. Um, Nehemiah is asked something else by the king. And what Scripture says is that Nehemiah prayed in that moment. And what the, what the notes basically illustrate is there's times when we could go off our, by ourselves, sit in a closet, we can pray, we can be long-winded, we can do all these other things and really enjoy God's presence. There are times, um, I think this will sound familiar to Bill, where you basically have to say, help me Jesus, and that's the, the, uh, the amount that you get out. This was basically Nehemiah's prayer under his breath, and he had the answer for, for the king. And so the third, ex- the third set of exiles are going to be coming back with the intention of building the wall. In this process, I, I want to highlight out that, there, that over the, the course of both of these books, or this long book, two-part book, um, one thing that is noted is that all of the tribes were to be represented. They made sure that whoever was going... All of the tribes, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, were all coming back with them. In fact, when Ezra goes to take everyone out, he notices there's one group missing, the Levites. Okay, and here's your, here's your, your, your fun thing. What purpose did the Levites serve? What was their... Who were the Levites? They were the priests. They were going to be the ones that would be, that especially in coming back in and dealing with a temple that's now been rebuilt and everything else, this was important. This was even more important in the fact that Ezra was the one coming out of that and was a priest. He was out of that line. And so Nehemiah makes sure that the tribe of Levi was present. And so they all go and into that. Now there are, there are two large parts of this that, that aside from the the the, uh, the logistics, you know, we built the temple, we built the wall. 
All of this comes down to a couple of things that really cause some extra problems. One of which is that the exiles have been in captivity long enough that they do not remember their, their home tongue. They do not remember Hebrew. And so there are parts of Scripture in, in here that basically Ezra had to explain to them what this was talking about because all they understood was Aramaic now. They didn't understand the Hebrew. And when he's reading from the, from the book of Moses, from the law, in order to kind of reestablish them, give them a jump start, if you will, he had to explain and there had to be explanation for them in order to understand what was being talked about. What Ezra first has to deal with is that there... Did you have a question? Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think sometimes that's what the Antichrist is going to do with this, put a piece together. So it may not make much sense, but he'll be able to talk and keep it together. Not for the glory of God, but for the family. There are several references in here to the, to the, the Exodus, to, to Moses and everything, and you start seeing certain patterns. And one of them I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit in pretty quick here is that Ezra, the first thing he has to address is the people that have come before him, because, of course, he again has brought the second set of exiles. The ones that are there have already married up. Who did they marry to? People of the land. They married those that were not, that were not Hebrews. They were of, of a different faith. They were of a different nationality. They were a different mindset. They were a different way of life. Everything else was different. And when, when Joshua leads the, the Israelites into the promised land, one of the first things that God says is, do not intermarry with the people. Not because there's something you know, physically wrong with them. It's the fact that they will corrupt your, your, your morals. They will corrupt your faith. They will corrupt your understanding. They will corrupt your religion. And as we see through, of course, then we get into, of course, Solomon, and we talked about that several weeks ago, that Solomon's main, main downfall was he started marrying several wives. I mean, that in and of itself was probably bad enough. Not that there's anything wrong with women. I love my wife. One is enough, okay? Just saying. But he, but he marries up, but he marries up to all these other people from, from all around, because he can, and, his, and the corruption starts seeking in because they change the way he sees it. I've, I've witnessed this a few times, and I, and I think the, the thing that really hits me personally is when you allow someone else that has a completely different worldview in, your worldview starts changing in order to make them happy. That, that whole, who knows the phrase, happy wife, happy life? Yeah, there's a reason that that is phrased that exact way. It's because men are not the smartest or the strongest at keeping things in check if they don't put things in place that way to start with. 
And the scripture even today, still in, in, in 2 Corinthians, talks about this of not intermarrying, not purposely marrying as a believer someone that is not a believer, because it will, it will corrupt that, and I can witness to that as well. The, the things I wanted to bring out, though, is as, as Nehemiah and Ezra get into this, Nehemiah then gets into the fact that, they're, that aside from the intermarrying, which was going to corrupt them, which had to be corrected, and Ezra basically got everyone on, on the page and then had to do it again because they went back, the, Nehemiah then has to deal with the fact that these are people that essentially have started all over. If you think of the fact that the only difference between the, the, the exodus and coming into the promised land and now the, the exiles coming back into the promised land, the only difference between those is the language they're speaking. Because they're coming in with the same morals, the same background, the same ideas, and they're, they're, they're repeating the same problems that they have for the last couple thousand years. We tend to be creatures of habit, and the only way that we become creatures of the right habits is we have to put the right habits in place. Amen? A couple of things that I wanted to draw out, and this is where the note's really nice. Okay, I'm actually going to turn this on. I, I actually do like your light occasionally here. And this actually comes from, um, from the 10th the verse in the 7th chapter of Ezra. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Three things to, to bring out of this, and, and we're, we're going to get to the actual preaching here in a little bit. Ezra had devoted himself to, one, study God's word, two, to practice it, and that's a, that's a biggie. And the third is to teach it. If we, if we look at common evangelism now, or, or how most of us come into uh, to, to conversion, we stop at the, at the first two, and maybe we just stop at the first one. We study God's, God's Word, and, and we stop at that. Okay, I've, I've read it, I've done this, okay, I'm a good Christian. No, that's not it. it then applies it. They follow it. And the following, as we will find throughout the rest of the, the, the chapters here in, the, in this two-part book, is that the following it is where everyone seems to fall down. And where basically, in order for success to come about, there has to be a whole new worldview different than what they had been accustomed to. And so Ezra's position was to teach it to others. Now, the one other part that came out of here and I've had things falling out of my Bible all day, so it's been fun. Um, we've, we've talked about spiritual revival, right? In the church, in, the, in the, the church here, the church overall, all these things. And I found some, some excellent things. This is out of the 7th the, uh, chapter, or 8th eight through the 10th chapters of Nehemiah, just to get these, because these are great points, I thought. One is that, and it says, describes uh, that these chapters, describes one of the greatest revivals in the Old Testament times and illustrates several basic elements of spiritual renewal. I want you to listen to this. True revival comes only from God and is a result of a renewed emphasis on His Word. Prayer? Sorry, Word. Prayer. Confession of sins. And, we, and I've, I've mentioned that before. 
we tend to be in, in kind of the, the Pentecostal church a little light on, on confession. We kind of say, well, I'll stop doing it, and we just let it go away. We don't confess what it's done in that relationship. Genuine humility and repentance. And sometimes we can get a little full of ourselves just because of the environment we're in. Rejection of the sinful beliefs and behaviors of society. And that's a big one I just was mentioning. And the last is a renewed commitment to follow God's plans and to make God's word the final authority for living. Those are, those are eight points that we really could, could spend weeks on trying to, to, to study. What are the, the things in our own lives where we have fallen off, where we, where we expect revival and we're, we're trying to do something simple? We're trying to for, for cheap revival. We're trying for something where we say, God, we want you and come in, and that's, that's our expectation. Our expectation is to say, we want a revival and God's going to plop a revival in our laps and everything's going to be different. We tend to, to forget that revival comes by individuals as well as corporate assemblies doing these same things, to, be in, to, to have an emphasis on his word, to be in, in fervent prayer, to confess our sins, to be genuine, humble, to be humble and, and seek repentance, to actually not only acknowledge that we've done something, but also to ask for forgiveness. We are a little light on, for, on asking for forgiveness unless someone yells at us. Rejection of the sinful beliefs and behaviors of society is probably one of the things that I think we get caught in the most, and that's because we, we have friends, we have family, we have so many others around, and we want to get along. That's sometimes the, the thing you see on the back of, of people's bumper stickers, and I don't want to pick anyone out, not to hear anyway. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says coexist? Coexist is a great thought, okay? There is nothing wrong with coexisting. The problem is that when your entire idea is to either co-opt all of these different conflicting beliefs or to completely obliterate all of them in order to not offend anybody, so you either have every belief, which is nothing, or you have no belief, which again is nothing, but you think somehow that you're, that you're spiritual and, and mo- motivated and everything else, but you have no morals, you have no direction, you have no, uh, no, no guiding light, if you will, for this. And as Huh? We don't want to offend anybody. Narrow-minded, yeah, intolerant, that's a good one. I, and, I, and I think just to, before going on, the idea with, with not offending someone, there, there I believe is a, is a big difference between purposely saying things in order to offend someone and, and proclaiming the truth in a, in a manner that is respectful, that is, that is empathetic, that is said in love, that spoke, speaking the truth in love, as Scripture says, and that, that the, the mere truth of it, even in a sense of genuine humility and compassion for others, is still offensive because it flies in the face of their world belief. I, I think oh, the the thing that I've that I found the most out of, and I I keep 
I'm not harping on it, but basically overemphasizing it, is the fact that reading things that I've never read before has changed so much just in my personal in my personal life, and my personal study, and my personal faith, my, my morals, my direction for things, how I act, everything else, because as you're going through, the Word actually convicts you at the, at the points. It may not hit you square over the head, but you may come across something and go, oh, I need to work on that. Because it keeps us, it keeps us centered in what we need to do. It's, it's like that, that old phrase that said, you know, you, you just need to focus on Jesus. If you're always following Jesus and your focus is always on Jesus, you're not distracted with all these other things, and that's true. But the way that we, that we follow God's precepts, and we'll, we'll get into this just a little more here, is that we continually stay grounded in the Scripture. We stay in what is God's word, what he has spoken to us, the directions we follow his precepts, we follow his laws, we, we follow the spirit of the law as we, as we find in Christ as well, we follow the Holy Spirit, but it is not just a, a feeling or something where we get an, an instinct of doing something. Everything that the Holy Spirit directs us to do is all found in Scripture. It is all demonstrated in Scripture. It is all set as a, as a precedence. Precedence has been set for anything the Holy Spirit asks us to do has been set in Scripture. And while we, while we consider it or think about it as, well, we're just going and, and w- with no direction, God has given that direction over and over and over and over and over. The, the part in here, let me see if I can find it here. It must be this one. Okay. Um, the revival that was led by Ezra, Ezra resulted in a firm commitment to obey God's word and live by his standards. The people did three things. I believe I counted right, three things. To faithfully follow God's commands and regulations. What would the church be like just, just with that one? If we followed God's uh, commands and regu- regulations, we, we, were, we were obedient we worshipped him only. We didn't envy our neighbor's stuff. We honored our, our parents. We were, uh, we, we were not lying and, and killing and stealing and cheating. And we weren't having those. If, if that alone was it, and we kept that, that, that spirit of the law in there as well, that may be all that we need to do. But Ezra says that the second here is to keep themselves spiritually pure and unpolluted by the ungodly culture around them. And that is, that is huge right now. We are, we are in such a culture, and that's why whenever, whenever political things come up and everyone kind of, kind of divvies out, you know, this, this Christian or that Christian or whatever else, and everyone kind of divvies up the, the Scripture like somehow this is co-opted, Jesus was not a political figure. Jesus did not have a politic because if, if, all of, if all of creation is all of God's children, he would ideally like them to come even though they won't all respond to it. The intention is still that there is not a single person that he does not love, that he does not uh, bless, that he will not listen to if they are fervent in their prayer. The question is, are the people that are voting or the people that are coming to this, are they actually studying Scripture to be able to understand what they're saying or are they just pulling out Scriptures? One of the biggest things I've ever hated in, in a lot of Christians or preachers or anyone else is called proof texting. Do you know what proof texting is? 
Yeah, I finally found a $20 word no one knows. Okay. Proof texting is, pulling, uh, is plucking out a certain scripture that you have already set a predetermined thought for. And I, in, in seminary, the, the one thing that I, I brought out, um, now given, it was a black preaching course, so I just want to say if that adds anything to it. In the black preaching, the question was to analyze a black preacher's preaching. And I, because I'm over-enthusiastic, over picked Martin Luther King Jr. as a nice white boy. As a motivational speaker, Excellent. Used scripture, brought it in, hit certain things because people had a, had a concept for it and they, they would understand it because that's what's there. But what was very prominent within his preaching was a proof texting. He would come up with, this is the specific things. And I'm not saying that, he was, that it was wrong, I'm just saying it was plucking specific things out and using them as a sermon example instead of the, the basis of the sermon. He's taking it out of context is a, is a risk, and yes, a lot of times he used it in order to, to put notoriety or put, put credibility into what he was saying, but not necessarily containing the, the whole of Scripture. It's why, with, with no offense given, whenever Greg comes up and, and says, okay, here's the Scriptures for the week, because you all know I do the, the devotions. If, if he sends over and says, okay, I'm doing this Scripture, and he gives me one verse... You'll find the devotions are awfully looking at, often looking at a whole passage. Because the question is, and the, the, the word therefore, you know, therefore this and such and so on, I want to know what is that therefore. And so, so to find the entire context is to therefore keep away from this idea of pulling a scripture out of context, applying it to something that is completely not, uh, not, not obligate, that is not um, applicable. And we, and we find that so much in, in church anymore, and in, in at least, I don't want to say theology, but basically the, the persuasion that they try going with is that they pull something out. The idea of, uh, uh, one, of the greatest, one of the best examples I could think of is judge not lest you be judged. Plopped in there. Okay, so that says it, and they apply this is the meaning for that scripture. The problem is that that isn't exactly what that says. Now that's part of it, but that's not the whole. And so that's why, as, as we need to look at that, it is the whole of this. I got a little off. And the idea, though, is that as being spiritually pure and unpolluted by the ungodly culture, it means that we do not allow them to define what the, what the, the Word of God says for us. We read it, we study it, we follow it as we said below, because we are committed to faithfully following God's commands and regulations. We study the Word in order to understand it so that the world does not define it for us. We are able to see it. And we are not just defining it for everyone else. We are defining it. We are allowing it to define us. And the third part here says, and to support God's work with their time, money, and possessions. I found an interesting part in this. And, and Greg's read Malachi several times having to do with tithing. Tithing out of Malachi was not given as an obligation. It was not a thou shalt tithe. You have to tithe. It is, you know, set. It was a privilege. 
It was understood that the way that we receive God's blessings is that we invest what God has given to us. We give the first fruits in so that God can bless that and use that away, and, and God will bless us as well. It was never meant as an obligation that if you don't do this, bad things are going to happen. That was, that was never the context for any of this. From, from Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel offering this up, this was a, a thanksgiving, and we're going to hit that a little bit because that's, that's ultimately what came in out of the end of Nehemiah is a celebration of recognizing not only their disobedience but God's faithfulness. And so the last one that I, that I hit, and some of these were just hitting me over the head for it, um, and this is again where we talked about separated all those of foreign descents. Let me see if I can find it here. Okay. I'll read the whole thing. The customs and practices of the surrounding nations were so wicked according to God's law that it was necessary, say necessary, necessary, at this time to totally separate foreigners from the Jewish people. God knew that their evil ways would have slowly been accepted and practiced in the Israelite community thus bringing them again to the point where they were before God allowed them to be conquered and deported by their enemy. Let's back up. Before he allowed them to be conquered and deported. In other words, all of this he's trying to avoid having happen again because it's already happened. Can't say they're they're not committed to to, uh, doing the same things over and over again. Um, the, The reason it gives is one, Human nature seems to be so easily tempted to follow pleasures and lifestyles that are clearly destructive. My dad used to, used to give me a phrase, and he said, in spite of better options and better outcomes, we will always, we will always tend to go back to what is familiar. And that's been true over and over again. We often will return to what is familiar. It's why, it's why uh, battered wives go back to their husbands and get beat again and again and again, and vice versa for husbands, if you will. It is why there are children that, that, will, that will leave and try to do it, and, they, and even though their lives are completely miserable, their desire is to go back to their parents. Why? Because they enjoy being beat, because they enjoy being, being degraded, because they like wearing, wearing loose, you know, terrible clothes, because someone else wants to allocate the money. no. Because it's familiar. Because the, the fear of what is different is always going to push us in what was familiar. And if you remember back, what was, the, what was the first thing that the Israelites said to Moses after he got him out in the desert? Why did you leave us out here? To starve. We were, we were fed in Egypt. We were happy in Egypt. They had selected memory. It was familiar. It is. We will, we will constantly go back if we do not address, and that's again where that confession comes up, we do not confess what has caused us problems in the past in obeying God in order to reap His blessings because we will continually go back to what is familiar. It's that the... the uh, for, for, the, for the two pastors in the room, if I said, what are the seven last words of a dying church, what would they be? <laughs> Close enough. We've never done it that way before. 
And that is, that is our thing over and over, is that what is unfamiliar, it's the, it's the same reason why, why contemporary music in so many congregations is fought against, it's why all these other things that, that comes in, every change, you, cl- you change the carpet, and all of it comes back to, it is unfamiliar. And it causes them anxiety. And the problem is, I think, we don't take control of the change, and therefore it's not our idea. Imagine what it would be like to actually come and obey God's Word and to look at it and to hold it and to change our entire being by choice because we desired to have something different and we were willing to address it because the outcome was worth the risk. Let me finish. Okay. An essential requirement for God's people is to remain holy. Say remain holy. Remain holy. Morally pure, spiritually whole, separated from evil, dedicated to God. This means we must reject all beliefs, behaviors, and values. Say it with me. All beliefs, behaviors, and values that oppose God's standards. It also means avoiding and taking a stand against the popular expression of evil. Failure to be on guard can result in the loss of God's blessing and the good he has determined for us. Thinking back to, to two weeks ago when we were discussing Daniel, you remember what I said that, that Daniel's key to success was? He prepared for adversity. He prepared for opposition. He prepared for, for, uh, for people to, to challenge what God's word was for them. And even in the, in the place that he was, he was not going to compromise because he, he, he challenged, he created, what's the word? He prepared for it. We cannot go into life with an idea of, we'll just see what happens. That is, that is probably one of the, the dying things within the church as well, is that we, we just want to go with the flow. We just want to see what happens. We want to let things happen. We, uh, I think one of the most dangerous things for us as, as followers of God is the idea that God is going to make things happen as God wants them to happen, and I don't have to do anything about it. God's going to fill up the congregation with all sorts of people. God's going to send people into the building. God's going to... I really have something here. Okay. <laughs> God is going to do everything regardless of what we do. And that's baloney. God's will is able to do things like, oh, change the mind of a Persian king in order to allow them to to rebuild the, the temple. He is able to change the mind and the heart. But when it comes down to it, the success or the failure of the Israelites going back was going to be based on their obedience. And it goes back to that that thought. Praying for an opportunity and planning as though it's going to happen. A second part that, that seemed to come in kind of connected with that is to pray to prepare for the opportunity and be willing to take it when it comes. It seems a little different than that. But there are some times that God opens something right in front of you, and there is no preparation necessary except for you to be prepared that God's going to open the, the doors of happen, heaven and make things happen if you will simply follow. 
If you and I would simply follow and, and go with that, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in as, as we're, you know, post, uh, post-Old Testament, post-Hebrew Scriptures, fulfilling the law is really the, the key. It is the fulfillment. We cannot opt out and say, well, we're, we're all about Jesus and doing that because Jesus was all about God's laws and God's precepts. He was all about following and opposing what the world would, would put in even when it comes out of the mouths of the religious officials. He continued to look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and telling people, do what they say, not as they do. Because they, were, they knew that, that first part, and maybe that, that answers the question, what happens when we, when we obey just this? We become Pharisees, and unfortunately what happens? That's why we have to personally take control over the fact that we need to be obedient to what God wants us to do, and that we need to be grounded in the Scripture so that we are given clear instructions and not just going on someone else. I think one of the, the hardest things that we will ever realize is when we have allowed someone else to control our understanding of Scriptures and find out they're wrong. And then, not only are you in a disobedient place, but you were disobedient by trying to be obedient. The only way that we are going to find this is to be able to understand that we have to accept it as a personal part. That, that's why we talk about the, the, the relationship with God as a very personal relationship. It's not because it's subjective. It's not subjective at all. God's, God's will, God's desire is the same for every single one of us. The relationship that we have with him is because we are investing ourselves in that relationship. We are desiring that relationship. We are desiring to allow God to change us, for for Christ to change us, for the Holy Spirit to lead us. We are actively participating in what God desires for us. And we are then doing what Ezra did, and we are teaching others. We need to, if we are to ever have a revival, we have to take the fullness, the whole of Scripture, the whole of what God has for us, the whole of what it is to be a Christian, to be a a follower of of God, and we have to accept that we cannot part and parcel everything out and just say, well, I've got this right and I can just leave this out. It is a complete part. The the entire culmination for, for Ezra and Nehemiah is that they held a celebration to realize that they had been disobedient and that even in spite of all of their disobedience for thousands of years, God was always faithful. God was faithful in providing for them in exile. He was faithful for providing them when they were under kings that were not, that were not obedient to him. They were faithful even when David and Solomon were there and doing everything right. He continued to be faithful from the, from the very start of creation even when we fell short. That's why in, the, in the, 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 the Jewish faith, there are certain holy times where they come back simply to remember. They, they have, a, they have a, a celebration of Purim to remember when God saved them during the time of Esther. They remember the times when God saved them from Egypt in the Passover. They remember the times... Every 10 years, I believe it said, for, the, for the, the Feast of Booths, and that was simply to be able to read the law yet again. 
We have to continually keep the Word of God fresh in our minds, in our hearts, and to follow it and to be obedient and to recognize because it flies, it is easy to see where the world has led us astray when we are looking at the, at the key source of what we're supposed to be doing. The, problem, the, the only problem we will ever have is deciding whether or not we are going to do it or not. And I am not, I have not arrived by any means. I still fall short. I still say things. I still think things. But God's word continues to shape and direct. And the desire to be faithful means that it is an easy yoke to take upon. To realize that this is not a heavy-handed God hitting me upside the head and saying, you're an idiot. It's God coming alongside and saying, this is where you were off, and this is where I want to put you back on place because I, I love you, and I want to provide for you, and I want to be faithful to you. I want you to see that I am faithful in spite of everything else, that I am faithful to bring you back because you belong here. This has kind of wandered a little bit, but this is the last of the Old Testament ones, but I, I think there's a significance in the fact that all of this comes back at a point when the, the Israel, it, it ends on a, on a good note. It ends on a high note. Everyone is celebrating. Everyone is worshiping. Everyone is doing what they're supposed to be doing after all sorts of acknowledgement that they messed up big time. And now after 70 years, they have another shot. And there's enough people that are, that are willing to try to keep them back on course. And God will remain faithful through this that they are celebrating. We always think of this, this 400 years of where God was silent as this part where, where basically God was mad at somebody, and that's, that's not the case. I, I find in Ezra and Nehemiah, that is not the case at all. God is silent because he has set us an example. We have responded in kind. We have repented of, of sin, and we have set ourselves on a, on a good course until he comes back, until it, it comes time again for that good ending to need another new beginning. I don't think so. I, I, I think the very root of teaching the Word of God is going to purposely offend when it does not match up. And it, it's not necessarily that someone walks out and goes, well, I don't, I don't think that's, that's right. It's even just that quiet thing when you go, oh, no, 